Okay. Hi, everybody. My name's Don. I'm an alcoholic. I don't know why, but I'm about as nervous as a long-tailed cat in a room full of rocking chairs. I really um, uh, want to thank the committee for asking me to speak tonight. I want to thank Ray for introducing me. He took off. <laughs> oh, be darned. <laughs> anyway, it's great to be here. And I believe me, I qualify to be here. I'm a dyed-in-the-wool alcoholic all the way. I look back on my life, and I've had this great privilege, though, of leading two completely, entirely different lives. Uh, they couldn't be any different. They say you've got to change 180 degrees. I don't know if I've changed that far, but I've changed quite a, quite a ways from where I was. The old life was, uh, I'd run it out. There wasn't much left there for me. I, in the big book, in the 11th chapter, it talks about the four hideous horsemen, terror, bewilderment, frustration, and despair. Boy, when they wrote that, they were reading my mail, believe me. I was, I'd had it. I was so full of terror. Uh, I knew I was going to die if I didn't stop drinking, and I knew I couldn't stop drinking. Sometime before I got into AA, I started having these alcoholic seizures. I'd sober up for two or three days, and then I'd just have a seizure, just, just come on, and I'd wind up on the floor and wouldn't even know what happened when I woke up. I thought I had epilepsy. So I went to a doctor, and he checked me out, and he said, I think you're right. I think you got epilepsy. I thought, well, that's kind of serious. I better go to another doctor. <laughs> so I went to the second doctor, and he says, well, you're not, you don't have epilepsy. I said, what have I got? And he said, nothing. You're just an alcoholic. <laughs> then I wanted to have epilepsy. <laughs> I thought you could give me a shot or a pill for that, but if I was an alcoholic, I'd have to quit drinking. And he told me another thing. He says, I'm going to tell you right now, if you don't stop drinking, you're going to be dead in two years. And the first thought that went through my mind was, he did say two years. <laughs> you know, I don't have to rush into this thing. <laughs> my great plan was I was going to uh, drink for a year and then quit. And that would give me plenty of time. i just use half the time up that I had. So I drank for the year, and then I quit for ten days, and, of course, got drunk again. And I reached a point where I just absolutely gave up. And when I finally sobered up, I had used up one year and nine months of that time he gave me. And he could have been off three months pretty easy, you know. <laughs> I pushed that envelope just about as far as you'd dare push it, you know. And I, I was, when I came in, I was bankrupt mentally, physically, morally, and financially. I uh, was out of friends. A few bar flies around. If I had money to buy drinks, they'd be around, but that was it. And my family pretty much disowned me and... Uh, my wife had left me. There wasn't much left. And there's another part in that, uh, that chapter 11. It mentions the loneliness of, the, of this disease. And man, it says, uh, you know, we, we don't, us Alkies get to know loneliness such as few people ever do. And uh, there's an old song out, you don't know what lonesome is till you get to pushing cows. And that's a bunch of baloney. You don't know what lonesome is till you're an Alkie at the end of your drinking. That's when you will know lonesome. I could be in a room with a hundred people and be the most lonesome person there. A lot of times I'd go into a bar, I'd get in the corner and just, I didn't want to talk to the bartender, I didn't want to talk sports or uh, the weather or anything. I just wanted him to keep the booze flowing in front of me. A lot of times I'd rather just take a case of beer and just go out and get in my pickup and drive the back roads and drink that. I'm like that story 
they'd talk about the guy in the elevator at the top of the skyscraper, and the elevator's plumb full of all his friends, and he's in there with them. It goes down one floor, and some of his friends get out, and a few more friends get on, but always more get out than get on. And when the elevator reached the basement, he was in there all alone. And that was me. That's where I was at with my life. I was sitting home alone one night, 3 o'clock in the morning with a case of beer on my lap, and the radio turned down low, and old Lonnie, uh, not Lonnie Bell, Hank Williams, old Hank Williams came on and started singing, I'm so lonesome I could cry, and boy, the dam busted. The tears just poured out of me. I just was so miserable, and I couldn't, I just couldn't stand it. I'd go in and try to pray, and I didn't know how. I thought God had given up on me, and he hadn't. I'd given up on him. And I'd get on my knees, and it would just be this huge black hole in front of me. I didn't know what to say. I just, I didn't know what to do. I just was in terrible, terrible agony with this loneliness. And I got to change that life from one of that to the one I've got today, this happy, being happy, joyous, and free. And this is the most beautiful, wonderful thing that could possibly ever happen to me. Uh, you know, this tonight is a, is a blast. But for me, the best part of tonight won't even happen until tomorrow morning. When I wake up in a warm, clean bed, I'm going to know where I'm at. I'm going to know where my car is at. And if the phone rings, I answer. If somebody bangs on the door, I go see what they want. You know, I don't have to duck and hide anymore. A couple of years ago, I was working in my shop, and I thought I heard something. I looked out. There was a sheriff's car sitting in the yard. And I thought, well, I wonder what the hell he wants. So I wandered over there. He was looking for an address, was all. And I remember when I was drinking one time, a sheriff's car drove in the yard. And I told my wife, get the door. <laughs> I didn't want any part of it. I didn't know what he was selling, but I knew I didn't want any of it, whatever it was. <laughs> to get to have this life today is just absolutely unreal. It's, it's such a fantastic life. And uh, I guess I was kind of like everybody, all the rest of you guys. I was born irritable and discontent. I was born way back on a ridge, way out south here between Indian Creek and Broken Leg Creek. And that's way, way, way back in the hills. I was raised so far back in the hills, I was 10 years old before I figured out my name wasn't Get Wood. <laughs> I was really what you call a clod-kicking, head-hanging country kid. I was a hillbilly all the way. And uh, I had a... A problem with me, and uh, I'm left-handed and I'm dyslexic. And some of you maybe don't know what that means. It means that part of my brain's backwards or something, because I'll read a phone number fast and I'll write it down backwards. Or I can see, like, my name, D-O-N, I'll see it as N-O-D. And uh, that's something a left-handers have. Well, uh, back then, they didn't even know what the problem was. They said anybody left-handed was possessed by the devil. The... <laughs> The devil's hand was the left hand. They all said that, and they tried to switch you to your right hand, and now I can't write with either hand when they got done. <laughs> but I uh, was uh, a terrible student in school. I went to this little bitty country school. There were six kids in the whole school, and that was way before they even invented school buses. We had to ride our horses to get there, and it was way out in the sticks. And... Uh, that was during the war, not the Civil War, the Second World War. <laughs> yeah. All the good teachers had quit teaching school, and they uh, 
we're working in the defense plants get to make way more money of course so once a year some of the parents would go to town and they'd find some old retired lady that used to teach school and get her to come out and batch on that little bitty schoolhouse and try to teach us little heathens something she was more of a babysitter than a teacher really and me being dyslexic on top of it uh, I didn't learn anything. I was in the third grade so many years that one day they threw me out because I forgot to shave. <laughs> but one, finally, I, I did make it to the fourth grade and then I quit school because my dad was still in the fifth grade and I didn't want to pass him. <laughs> But I, uh, I was a terrible student in school. I was the only kid in my class there. And then when I was in the fourth grade, we moved over north, and I had to go to the little town of Ballantyne. That's about 25 miles down the river. And there was like 60 kids in that school, and I never saw so many people in one clatter in my life. And all the other kids could multiply and divide, and I could barely add and subtract, and they could write, and I could barely print. They could all read, and I couldn't hardly read at all. Half of what I'd read would be backwards. And so they should have kicked me back a couple of years, but they didn't in those days. They just shove you on through, make room for somebody who could learn. And as a result, I always felt dumber than the other kids, and I was dumber. I felt different. But I learned early, if I could get a couple of beers in me, then I could stand to be who I was. I could be one of the boys. I could go ask a girl for a dance at a, a school party, or I could ask one for a date. I couldn't do those things like that if I didn't have beer in me. The first drink I ever remember of, I was like four years old, and my dad gave me a little sip of wine. And I'll never forget it. I thought, I was sure wish he'd give me more. I was at the old alcoholic behavior right there, you know. When I was 10, I stole a beer and went off in the weeds and drank it. The very first thought that raced through my mind was, why didn't you steal two or three or four? If one makes you feel this great, imagine what four could do for you. you know. and I thought alcohol was the greatest thing in the world. And one alcoholic said, and I agree with him, he said that alcohol was the only thing that kept him from going insane until he got into AA. And I truly believe that in my case. I, beer was my buddy. I just loved beer. I loved everything about it. But I did notice that I was drinking different than the other kids. They'd sip a beer, and I'd slam mine down. If there was four kids and five beers, you know who got that fifth beer every single time. They didn't have a chance. There was another kid and me. We used to uh, run together. We'd get a case of beer. A case of beer back then was $4, buck a six-pack. Great Falls Select was the name of it. It wasn't very good, but we were after quantity, not quality. <laughs> We'd go to a dance with this case of beer, and he'd drink maybe four or five or six. I'd slam the other 18 down if, if I didn't pass out or black out first. It was a great deal for me because he put up half the money and only drank a fourth of the beer. you know. <clears throat> so I knew then that I was, I was drinking different than the other kids. I could drink a can of beer faster than any kid in that school. And my idol heroes back in those days were the cowboys. And we lived on a ranch, and I wanted to be like those old cowboys. They chewed snooze, rolled bull Durham, and drank a lot. I got two of the three down. I, I could chew snooze, and I could roll bull Durham, but I could, never could handle the liquor. It always, always won out over me. I just couldn't do it. There was another guy in school I graduated with, and he was just like me. 
drank just like me and everything. We got out of school, he went in the army and uh, got out of there a couple years later and him and I rented a house in Billings and we were drunk every, four times a week, Wednesday nights, Friday, Saturday and Sunday and uh, sometimes in between but uh, at least four nights a week. I don't know how we held our jobs but we somehow managed to and one Sunday, back in those days the bars didn't open until one o'clock on Sundays and uh, one Saturday night we were chasing the painted ladies and we didn't get any beer bought for Sunday morning so uh, Sunday morning boy we were out of beer and we were hurting and nothing going on till one o'clock finally at 12:30, we went over to Clyde's saloon there on the heights we're sitting there waiting for him to open the door and this guy just turned to me and said you know we're both alcoholics and one of these days we got to start going to meetings and I said, no way. I said, I'm a heavy drinker and I drink too much, but I'm not an alcoholic. And he said, oh, yes, you are. About that time, old Clyde opened the door and I bailed out of the car. I, Clyde didn't want me to quit drinking, so I went in there. <laughs> but a, a couple of years later, this guy met this neat gal. She's just a real neat lady. And they got married. I was his best man and everything was great. A couple of years later, they had a little baby a little boy, and a couple years after that he got killed in a car wreck. His car took on a semi, and uh, that two-year-old boy never, ever, ever got to know his dad. And about four months ago, this guy's mother died. She was an old, old lady, and they asked me to be a pallbearer, and we were at the cemetery, and I looked over my shoulder, and here was this 40-year-old man standing at this grave looking down at it. It was this kid who had grown up. He was 40 years old and never, never knew his father, you know. And that's what alcohol does. You know, it just destroys things like that. It destroys families. And I, I justified Delmer, or, look, it's the right to use his name. Delmer, uh, he, I justified it because he always drove real fast. And I said, that never happened to me because I always drove slow. And so it, it would never happen to me. So I kept on drinking and doing my thing. And sure enough, I messed around, got a DUI, and... That didn't slow me up, as I knew the cops just picked on me that time. All my friends didn't get DUIs, so the odds of me ever getting another one would just be very minimal. But I picked up my second DUI, and uh, <laughs> that one wasn't quite so good. They, uh, I tried to whip the guy that arrested me, and they cuffed me and <laughs> took me into the jail, and they took the handcuffs off me, and the guy behind the desk, that old gray-haired guy, he started giving me a bunch of orders, and I thought to hell with him. I know I can. I couldn't whip that young guy, but I know I can whip that old guy. <laughs> I I climbed over the desk, kicked over a typewriter and a water cooler, and <laughs> he just hollered, "Take him down!" And they took me down, and I stayed down. Believe me. <laughs> when they got done thumping on me, boys, I was broke, and I was broke gentle. There was no no more fighting in me at all. And they threw me in jail, and you know how a drunk is. You try to run, your feet won't keep up with you, and I was running like that and crashed right into the end of the, the, end of the cell, and I heard that door clank behind me, and I thought, boy, I've done it pretty good this time. And I had to be in, only, only made me stay in there two days. And uh, there wasn't very many people in the jail, and it was just mostly me. And I was sitting there thinking... <laughs> You know, I don't get in trouble every time I drink, but every time I get in trouble, I've been drinking, for sure. And I tried to cut a deal with God. If he'd get me out of there, I promise I'll quit drinking. And two days later, he let me leave. And I got out, and it was a beautiful spring afternoon. I'm walking down the street, and I'm happy, joyous, and free, I thought. 
free from alcohol now on a beautiful fall day. I'm going to get in my pickup and go home. My pickup was down at the stockyards. That was about 12, 13 blocks from there. I walked down there, and on one side of the street was the stockyards, on the other side was the 17 bar, and I was on the side where the 17 bar was, of course. And I justified that. I thought, gosh, one bottle of beer. I've been in jail two days. I earned that one bottle of beer. I went in there, and of course, I got drunk again. Tried to get out of there. I'm driving up the street drunk. And just luckily, I didn't get another DUI out of that deal. And that's the way my life was uh, was getting. It was starting to spin out of control there. It, uh, just a little bit, not bad. <laughs> but I met this gal, and we got married, and I thought, now I'll never drink because uh, i got some responsibilities here. i got a wife to take care of. This is going to be wonderful. By golly, this is great. And it lasted about two weeks probably, and I got drunk. And But she was good to me. She'd drive me home from the bars, and she'd come and get me, and she'd fix food for me. And, oh, God, I really had it made. All of a sudden, she quit doing those darn things for me. She wouldn't come and get me out of the bars anymore. And one Sunday, I was feeding some cows. I got done, and I was out of beer. And the, my neighbor, in the meantime, had wanted to build a bar up the road three and a half miles from my house. So I went up and helped him. <laughs> helped him pour the concrete and put up the sides. And I thought, now I'll never get in trouble because it's a three and a half mile gravel road all the way home. So I was going to go up to that bar, and my wife just told me, she said, uh, we're going to have supper tonight at 4 o'clock. I said, okay, sounds great. Somebody gave her a goose, and she was roasting this goose. And I went up to the bar, and sure enough, 4 o'clock, the phone rang. She said, supper's on the table. You get down here. I said, okay, I'll be right there. Don't worry. Well, I made it down there at 10 o'clock finally. And I said, where's supper? She said, well, you weren't here to eat it, so I threw out the cats. And I thought she'd lost her mind. <laughs> I never dreamed... Why would anybody do anything like that, you know? I, I just couldn't imagine it. I didn't want to pick a fight, so I went to bed, and the next morning I got up and I opened the refrigerator up, and it looked like old Mother Hubbard's cupboard. There was nothing in there. And I went outside, and those old cats were sitting there licking their chops and a bunch of goose bones laying there. I just couldn't imagine what the heck had happened. Then I found out that she was going to Al-Anon. <laughs> that really torqued me. I hated those old bats. Why didn't they leave her alone? <laughs> you know? it, a lot of guys don't realize it, but in the first part of the fifth chapter on how it works, the first paragraph, it, it's about the Alanons in there. It says they are not at fault. They seem to have been born that way. <laughs> but... Uh, my life was just just spinning out of control more and more and more, and she'd leave me, and then she'd come back, and one time she left me and went clear to Portland to see her kids, and I didn't think she was coming back. And It was in the wintertime, and she called me up and said she wanted to come back. I said, okay, and she said, will you meet my plane at such and such a time? And I said, sure, I'll be there, don't worry. And she said, will you please be sober? And God, I got mad. How dare her? think that I wouldn't be sober, you know. Well, I got to Billings three hours early and put in a shift down there at the Spur Bar. Then I went to the airport, and it was real icy. And the greatest thing on the planet that happened, could happen, did. Her pl plane was delayed four hours. So I went in the bar up there. Her plane came, and I was propped up against one of those big pillars there. And I, terribly drunk, 
But I do remember seeing her walk towards me, and I could see the hurt in her eyes. And she was so hurt that I wouldn't be sober when she got there. And then they couldn't find her luggage, and I picked a fight with one of the Delta guys, and I was trying to climb over the counter to get at him, and she was trying to save me. I don't know why she didn't just throw me to the wolves, but she didn't. And finally got the suitcases, and I marched out the door with them mad, and I fell down the middle of the street on that ice, and I couldn't get up. Every time I'd get up, I'd fall down. I had traffic back both ways. Everybody blowing their horn and hollering, get that dumb drunk out of the road. Poor Cleo, that was my wife's name. She had to go drag the suitcases across and then come back and drag me out of the road. <laughs> I was just the way my life was. I didn't want to hurt her, but I just couldn't seem to help it. I, uh, one night, another time she left me, and I was coming home all drunk as a skunk, and I drove off the ditch, and I was on a gravel road. I got out and looked, and there was a big hole about four feet wide and about six feet deep off on the edge of where I drove off. My pickup is sitting like that. And I look at all over, and I thought, well, I can't do anything tonight, but in the morning I'll walk down, and Andy remembers Bud Roberts. He had a farm down there. I thought, I'll go get old Bud Roberts. He can pull me out of there. So I crawled back in the pickup. I shut that bottom door good and tight and took a case of beer and laid it up here for my pillow and passed out. And I mean completely passed out cold. And somebody must have went by and turned me in because a deputy sheriff came by, I guess. Anyway, somebody opened that bottom door, and I flew out of there and went right down in that hole. <laughs> and it was full of cockleburs and rose bushes, and this cop had this flashlight, and he shined it into my face. And here came that case of beer out of there and hit me right on top of the head. <laughs> I Beer cans all over, and the cop hollering at me, are you all right? And I said, well, get your damn flashlight out of my eyes. I might be. I don't know. And he had to fish me up out of that hole, and all he gave me was a careless driving ticket out of it. <laughs> he was laughing so hard he couldn't understand it. But I bet he couldn't wait to go home and tell everybody about that one. <laughs> it, uh, it just kept going like that, on and on and on, and finally... My wife left again, and I thought, well, this is, this is it this time. I was home alone with a bunch of cows and feeding them and not doing a very good job of that. And my wife came back, and unbeknownst to me, she got a hold of my brother. And they showed up one morning when I was, before I could get out of there. And uh, they just sat me down, and they, both of them just told me, you're an alcoholic, you've got to do something. And I told my brother, I said, I can quit, but I cannot stay quit. Well, he asked me if I'd go to uh, treatment. I said, I can't. I said, I'm, uh, uh, these cows are going to start calving in 10 days, so I can't be gone for like 30 days or something. But I said, I'll go to a detox, and then I'll start going to meetings. And he said, okay, if you'll do that. He said, I'll, he'd feed my cows for me while I was in there. So my wife went to get the suitcase packed for me, and my brother was feeding my cows. We were supposed to check in there at noon. It was about 11 o'clock in the morning. I thought, by God, she doesn't know it, but I still got three cans of beer and a half a pint. i got to get rid of that. So I slammed that down. When I got in that treatment center, boy, I was three-fourths in the bag. And I sat around there till uh, 6 o'clock that night, and they brought me some supper, and I couldn't even look at anything to eat. I couldn't drink coffee. The only thing I could do was take tiny sips of water, and thank God I could still smoke cigarettes. That didn't bother me. And uh, I went in my room that night, and I tried to pray. And like I said, I didn't know what to do or what to say. I knew I wanted to sober up so bad. And I didn't know how to pray. And I just finally, I just asked God to please help me with the alcohol problem. 
And then I tried to sleep, and I couldn't sleep. And the next morning, I'd been 18 hours without a drink, and I never in my life craved a drink as bad as I did that morning. I'm so thankful I was in a treatment center, or I'd have got a drink some way. And I got through that one at about 10 in the morning. The counselor uh, took me in his office, and we talked quite a while. The way he got sober, he was the school bus driver. And he took a busload of kids to a football game or a basketball game, and they all gave him money, and while they were playing, he went over and loaded up with booze on the school bus. And then all the kids and him got drunk on the way home. And the next morning, he woke up, and he asked his wife, where's the school bus? And she said, it's outside the door. He ran out there, and there was no scratches on it. He drove it home in a blackout. And he could have killed those kids so easy. And that scared him so bad. That's what got him sober. Anyway, he told me to go upstairs, room such and such. He said, there's a meeting at 11 o'clock. I want you to go to it. I said, okay. So I went up there, and there was about 20 people milling around there. And the first thing I did was look at all of them. I didn't know any of them. Nobody knew me, thank God. And I uh, got in the far corner and crouched down and... Doggone gal was chairing the meeting, and she spotted me, and she said, We have a newcomer. Would you like to tell us your name? And I thought, Hell no, I don't want to tell you my name. <laughs> then I thought, If I don't, I think they'll throw me out. And then I thought, I think you have to see her an alcoholic, or they'll throw you out too. So I said my name was Dawn, and I just mumbled that I was an alcoholic. I don't remember anything about the meeting except trying to keep from crying there a couple times. But what I remember was after the meeting... Uh, several of them came up and shook my hand and asked me to please come back. And it had been years since anybody asked me to come back. I couldn't believe it. I thought, how sick are you guys? <laughs> Lord. Another thing that got me when I said my name was Don, they all yelled, hi, Don. I thought, good God, a bunch of squirrels. <laughs> I, didn't, I wasn't too impressed with that deal. I came back downstairs and the nurse told me, uh, she said, I put the... There's a bowl of soup and a sandwich there for you. I said, I'm really not very hungry. She said, you haven't eaten in 24 hours since you've been here. She said, you either eat some of that or I'm going to put you in the hospital on IVs. And I said, now you just listen for a minute. I'm not going to eat that damn soup and sandwich, and I'm not going in the hospital on IVs. She said, the hell you're not. She said, make up your mind. And she went and got in her little room, sitting there looking at me. And I thought, you old witch, why don't you jump on your broom and fly off and bother somebody else but I finally ate three bites out of a sandwich and I ate four tablespoons of soup and that was the first food I had had in months in the mornings I'd get up and drink a half a bottle of beer and then fill it with V8 juice and most days that's all I got for food was that half a half a beer can full of V8 juice and the food stayed down I couldn't believe it and she said well if you promise me you'll eat a little better tonight I'll I won't put you in the hospital I said okay and that, that's how I finally got back on the food and I promised them in there they asked me if I'd come back to meetings five to six nights a week and I, t I told them I would and I did faithfully went into the meetings and uh, that was they were really helping me a lot and on the night or two nights I didn't go to meetings I'd uh, go in the bedroom at eight o'clock say my prayers and then I'd look at the clock and I would think I got another 24 hours in I only got four hours to go and I'm going to be in bed sleeping there's no way I'm going to get drunk in those four hours in the morning, I'd get up at 6, I'd look at the clock and think, okay, you only got 18 hours to go now. I couldn't break it down to 24-hour chunks. I, just, I had to break it down smaller pieces than that to, to keep sober. And I was about 30 pounds underweight. I was uh, 
physically was really wasn't much left there. I, uh, a time or two, I had to break it down into a minutes to stay sober. There was a bartender and warden named Ernie, and he told me, him and I were good friends, and he told me when I sobered up, he said, I promise you one thing, I'll never ever sell you another drink. But he said, I would like to have you come in the bar someday and have a cup of coffee with me or something. So one day I was in the warden, I was sober about four months, and I thought, why don't I go in there and show him how sober I am? Everybody should see how good I'm doing here. So I went, and there was nobody in the bar, I, I made sure of that. Went in there, and he was just sitting there swatting flies. And he got me a can of pop, and we were sitting there talking. And about that time, four or five of my good old hard-drinking buddies came in. And they were slamming down Rainier beer and making fun of me for drinking pop. And I was really, really wanting a drink. I was really getting scared. And I looked at the clock behind the bar, and I, I thought to myself, if I can stay sober one minute, I can be in my pickup and out of town. And I asked God to keep me sober one minute. When that second hand came up on top, I went out the door and got my pickup, and I made it out of there. And that, that was a very close call for me, a very dangerous one. When I was sober eight months, I went to a football game in Warden, and I shouldn't even have done that. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, I used to go to them at halftime. A whole bunch of us go over town for a beer, and most of the time we never made it back for the second half of the game, of course. But... Uh, I, after the game, I went over town and was going to pick up a newspaper. My wife asked me if I'd pick one up, and I was going into the drugstore, and the bar is right next to the drugstore. And one of my friends was walking in there, and he hollered at me. He said, come on in, let's have a cold one. And I said, no, I can't. I'm in a hurry. But I wasn't lying. I had to get out of town. I craved a beer right then and there so bad it was terrible. I got my pickup, and I got out of town. I was going over the railroad tracks, and I had both hands on that steering wheel and just hanging on. And I asked God to please remove that compulsion to drink. And it was removed right then and there for me. I've never had that compulsion come back. And it was eight months uh, being sober. It was removed. A lot of times, the thought of a drink sounds good. But that old terrible feeling, that I, I just that hole in your gut with the wind blowing through it is, is gone. That's a God-sized hole, and he filled the hole for me. And that's the last time I ever craved a drink. And I, I didn't do AA good at all. I went to those meetings in at the treatment center five, six nights a week. One night, sponsor or the counselor came to me and he says, how many outside meetings are you going to? I said, none. I'm just coming here. Well, he said, you can't come here the rest of your life. He said, you got to go to an outside meeting. I said, no, I like it here. <laughs> <laughs> he said, you either go to an outside meeting or don't come back here. Well, I said, well, I don't even know where they're at. So he gave me a list. I went through the list, and the 204 was written there on Grand Avenue then. And I thought, that's kind of out there. Nobody will know me. So I, I was stupid. I parked my pickup a block away from the place so nobody would see it in front of a, in front of the AA place. I didn't want them to know I was going to AA. And I went sneaking in there, and there was about 20 people. And again, I looked everybody over, and nobody knew me. I thought, I don't know anybody. I'll hide in the corner again. So I did, and they were just ready to start the meeting, and the chairman looked out the door, and he said, uh, come on in, Johnny, we're going to start the meeting. And Johnny walked in, and he was an auctioneer, and him and I used to sell auction sales together. And I was so embarrassed, I about died. And he hollered at me when he saw me in the corner, and I just about crawled under the chair. After the meeting, he came over, and he said, let's fill our coffee cups, I want to talk to you. So we got our cups full of... I told him, I said, John, I'm so embarrassed. I, I'm just, I'm terribly embarrassed. And he said, why? I said, because you're seeing me here at an AA meeting. 
He said, what the hell do you think I'm doing here? <laughs> he said, the only difference between you and me is I've been here for four months. He said, I'm just four months older than you are, that's all. And that kind of helped get me straightened out a little. I had another, first sponsor was another guy named Johnny. He didn't live too long. He went back out and drank and died. So I got this auctioneer, Johnny, to be my uh, sponsor. He wanted me to get in the steps, and I kind of went through three steps with him, kind of. And he kind of got after me to go into some others, and I said, no, no, I've done a lot of bad things. Let's let sleeping dogs lay. Uh, I said, the fourth doesn't look too bad, but look at the fifth. <laughs> and I said, you get down there a ways and look at that ninth step. <laughs> I said, I'm not going to do that. And he said, you will have to do it or you'll never get any real progress in this program. You won't grow any. And I, I wasn't very happy with AA. Anyway, I've been sober a year. I was sober a year and the president didn't even call me that day I was sober for a year. <laughs> so I thought, I think I'll just quit AA. Well, this Johnny was auctioneering all the time, and he'd run into me at a cow sale every once in a while, and he'd ask me what meetings I was going to. Well, I'd find out where he was going, and I'd go to a meeting there. I went to three or four meetings a year. That's really working a program, I'll tell you. After I was sober four and a half years, my gosh, my wife had left again. I couldn't blame her. I was cruel to her, not physically, but I, mentally. I, I hurt her a lot of times. I remember one morning uh, we got up and she said something to me, and I don't even remember what it was, but boy, I lit in the middle of her and told her off. And she turned around to walk off, and she just said it to herself, but I heard it. And she said, oh, God, this is going to be one of those days. And I felt so low. I felt about that high. But I could not tell her I was sorry. My pride and ego wouldn't let me do that. And, you know, I just feel so bad about that. That's terrible. And she'd left me again. And, well, she would not see her kids. She said, I didn't know she was coming back. I didn't suppose she would. Here I was sober four and a half years. And I was sitting in the house drinking coffee one morning. And I thought, you know, this just isn't working. i got to do something. As near as I could figure, I had three options. Either go back and drink, start going to AA, or commit suicide. And at that point in my life, suicide didn't look too bad. It, was, it looked better than some of the other options to me. It really did. But I'm a coward, and I know it. And I knew if I try to shoot myself, I'm going to be running. And I can't hit anything that was running. I knew that. <laughs> and as much as I hated AA, I thought, you know, it's still better than being drunk. It's, it's, it's better than that, but not by much. And I, I thought, maybe I'll, maybe I'll go to AA meetings. And the old higher power stepped in right then and there. I looked up, and a little white pickup drove in my yard. And this guy driving this pickup, I knew him well. He was a cowboy. He's about six years older than me. And he was one of my idols all the time I was growing up, because, man, he was a bronc-fighting fool, that guy. He was a whiskey-drinking, woman-chasing bronc fighter. And he was married to my cousin. Their marriage was about over then, but because uh, of his alcoholism. He came in the house, and we were sitting there drinking coffee, and I kept thinking, why did he come out here? He didn't come out here just to drink coffee. And he wouldn't say much of anything, just making a little small talk, and finally he just blurted it out. He said, I'm going to AA meetings. I didn't say anything, but I thought, you macho cowboy, you'll last about two weeks in there. Last month he celebrated his 24th birthday. <laughs> So that tells you how good I can pick them, you know. And it was just, uh, and he told me he was opening in the noon meetings at downtowners, and he said, I want you to, sure love to have you come into some of those meetings. 
Well, I was going to go to meetings anyway, and I thought, well, why, that'd be as good a place as any, so I told him I would. And I went in there, and the uh, first thing they did, they had the meeting, they opened it up, they called on this one guy, and he said he was a grateful alcoholic. And I thought, you pathetic, brain-damaged, senile old fool. <laughs> There's no such a thing as a grateful alcoholic, old man. And I thought, somebody get a net, let's get him out of here. He's going to turn violent. But he started talking, and I could kind of plug into him, and he, he made some sense. And then three or four other old alcoholics, GP was there, and old Richard, and some of those good old-timers. And they talked. I finally got a meeting where there was a bunch of good quality sobriety there. And after the meeting, for the first time, I went and filled my coffee cup. Instead of throwing it down and running for the door, I went back and I sat down in the middle of these old-timers and just listened to them. And I didn't say a word. I just sat there and drank my coffee and listened to them. And boy, it was good. And I got going in there, finally, and uh, very, very slowly. My wife came back, and we we've had a, had a great marriage then. Things started getting better. And then uh, this old cowboy, he moved to Huntley, and he called me up, and he says, I'm opening the Huntley meetings now, so come on down Sunday nights. I didn't want to go there either. I didn't want my pickup scene in front of the church on a Sunday night. <laughs> it never bothered me a bit to see it in front of that Huntley bar for five days at a time. <laughs> but I didn't. somebody might know I'm an alcoholic if it's in front of that church, <laughs> as if they didn't already all know. But I finally went down to Huntley meetings and got started down there, and uh, that's I really started getting some growth. That was a good group, and uh, my buddy, the old cowboy, uh, one day he threw the keys at me. He says, i got to move to Billings, and he said, I want you to open the meetings. So I opened the Huntley meetings about four years, twice a week, and took care of the money and got the coffee and washed the ashtrays and the cups, and it was just perfect. It was great for me. And after four years, I gave the keys to another guy, and... Uh, it was time for me to get out of there, and, and uh, it was just great. I uh, I still go to uh, about uh, oh, four to five meetings a week. I was talking to somebody out there, and uh, they asked me, how come you still go to so many meetings? And I said, well, it works. Why do I want to take a chance? I know some guys that don't go to meetings, and uh, some of them are still sober, but a lot of them aren't, you know. I've made a point out of asking people that go back out, why did you go back out? Did you have this horrible compulsion? And every single one of them said, no, there was no compulsion. I said, well, why did you go out then? And they all said the same thing, because I quit AA. I quit reading the big book. I quit praying. I quit working the steps. I quit working with my sponsor. And then next thing you know, they said, we're sitting in the bar drinking coffee, playing the poker machines, and the, ne the drink is just the next thing in line there. And that's what every single one of them told me, you know. And that's, that's scary. That just scares me to death. I don't ever want to go back. And over the years, I've managed to develop a fantastic relationship with my higher power, whom I choose to call God. I'm like Norma. I don't belong to any religious church or anything like that, but I'm very, very close to God. Every morning, I go out on my deck and watch the sun come up and pray, and then in the evening, I try to do the same thing when the sun's going down. And it's just perfect for me, and several times during the day. And... Uh, you know, one of the things we do in AA that's wrong, we get a newcomer and we tell him, just go to lots of meetings and don't drink between meetings. If that's all we tell them, they're going to die. we got to tell them to get in the big book, get on the steps, and get a sponsor. Because I, for four and a half years, that's all I did. I went to meetings and hid in the corner. And it darn near killed me, you know. They have to get in the program.
at Huntley. I got to uh, be the Santa Claus for seven, eight years down there at Christmas time, and then we had to, I was flipping hamburgers for the park, over at the park and our picnic in the, in the summertime, we'd have an annual picnic, and uh, it was just great. You need a home group and you need a, a sponsor, and I'll uh, go into that a little bit later, but uh, that is desperately, you need that. What am I doing here? Oh, all right, I guess. <laughs> Nobody fell asleep yet, doesn't look like so. <laughs> you know, uh, just because I sobered up, that doesn't mean squat. This old world still throws curveballs at us. And I watched my buddy, old Frank, this cowboy. I watched him. My, my cousin divorced him, and he married this other gal. And she had some kids, and then he had kids. And... Uh, they were living together, and they were married a couple of years, and his oldest stepdaughter, and he was very close with her. She got killed right out of Huntley in a dope deal on a car wreck. And I watched Frank go through that, and I wondered, how how's he do that? About two years later, his youngest daughter, whom he was really close with, got killed down in Texas on the same kind of a deal. And I watched that happen. And then his business, he lost his business. And he wound up working for his business, just like the used car salesman here. Jim, the used car salesman in the big book. And I, I was wondering, how in the world can he stay sober through all that? And then he went through two heart attacks, and then he got diabetes, and then his wife divorced him. And he stayed sober through the whole thing. And I always wondered, how, how can he do that? Well, I got to find out how he did it. And, uh, I didn't like it, but I got to find out. Seven years ago, my dear wife, who hung with me through all of this wild insanity, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And I, uh, I kept her home for about three years and three months, and then I had her in a nursing home for about the same amount of time. And I brought her back, I got her home there, and I thought, boy, I don't know how this is going to work, because I'm, I'm going to be missing some AA meetings, I'm sure. She's, when she's bad at night, I'm going to have to stay here. Well, I didn't even have to worry. If I missed three or four AA meetings, I started getting phone calls, or else, better yet, a couple pickup loads of hockey's that drive in the yard. And we had more doggone AA meetings out of my house, and it... You know, it was just lots of them. And uh, sometimes if my wife was up to it, she'd make a bunch of brownies for them, and I think half the time they came for the brownies more than for me. <laughs> but the point I'm trying to make there is it, it is critical to have uh, a home group and a sponsor. If I didn't have a sponsor and if I'd just been bouncing around hitting meetings, nobody would have known whether I was going to meetings or not. And this way they knew when I wasn't going to meetings. And finally... The doctor told me one day, he said, you got to put her into a nursing home. I wasn't getting any sleep, and he said I was going to have a heart attack if I didn't do something. So I took her. Geez, that was the hardest day of my life. She said she'd go in there, and then as we got ready to go, she was begging me not to make her go, and oh, God, it was terrible. But I got her in there, one nursing home, and that didn't work. I got her in another nursing home, and that one didn't work, and I got her. Finally, had to take her up to two north, or the deaconess. And then we got her in there for about two or three weeks, and then I got her into a real... And I made a vow when I put her in this nursing home that I would go to an AA meeting either right before or right after I'd see her, preferably after I'd see her, because that's when I needed one the most. And I kept the vow pretty good. Sometimes I couldn't. There was one day I know uh, she was having a real bad day, and I was with her all day until 11 o'clock that night. We finally got her to sleep. At 11 that night, and I walked out of that nursing home, and I was so tired and mad and disgusted and discouraged. 
I stood out there in that empty parking lot and I looked across the street and there's Lee's Saloon right across the street. And the old neon lights was a flashing over there. I thought, boy, a double shot of Jim Beam and a cold can of Rainier would sure take the edge off of this. And then I thought, there's no such thing as a double shot in a can. It's going to be a case in a jug. Before, you know, there's no way I'm going to drink a double shot in a can. I know what I'd have done. I'd have gotten drunk and gone back over to that nursing home and got thrown in jail. I wouldn't have been any help to my wife at all then, you know. So instead of going to Lee's Saloon, I went over to my pickup and said the serenity prayer and got in it and drove home. And uh, just so thankful. To this, thanks to this program, I was able to do that. Another time that was uh, tough for me were holidays. I've got two brothers and a sister, and uh, we're just not close at all. We, we go, all get together at Christmas time. Usually on our birthdays, we call one another, and that's about it, unless I run into them somewhere. But the AA guys are my, my family. I'm so much closer to you guys. And when I was going through with Cleo in the nursing home, uh, one time it was Easter Sunday, and I was sitting there going to make a sandwich. And the phone rang, and it was Bob. He said, what are you doing? I said, going to make a sandwich. And he said, can you hang on a minute? He says, I got a newcomer and a bucket of chicken. And I said, sounds good. I said, I got a bunch of ice cream. So he brought the newcomer out. And uh, I don't know if that newcomer is sober today or not. I sure hope he is, but I, I don't know if he is. But I know one thing, he sure helped me stay sober. We ate chicken and ate ice cream and watched Duke Wayne kick some booty on TV and, and uh, got through an Easter, you know. Another time on a Thanksgiving morning at 11 o'clock, a guy from Huntley called me and wanted to know what I was doing. I said I was going to make a sandwich. He started screaming and yelling, and I thought he fell out of his tree, but he was wanting me to come up to his place and eat dinner with him and his wife, so I did, and they had four or five other Alkies and their families, and it was a great time. Another time, uh, we did the same thing on the 4th of July, and uh, it was when we got the rockets and watched them shoot those off, and we just had a great time. We've had a lot of great times in AA. Almost every year at, thanks, or at uh, New Year's, we have a bonfire somewhere. Two years ago, we had one that was like 30 below zero or something. It was hideously cold. A lot of people showed up. It was amazing how many idiot alcoholics showed up out there. God, we had fun. But, uh, with my wife, finally, uh, March 2nd, she got to pass away. And I, I say got to. I've, it was a blessing. She was under 80, probably weighed 80 pounds, roughly. She didn't, hadn't known me for a long time. I'd hold her hand and talk to her, and sometimes she'd kind of look at me kind of funny, like maybe there was something there I could say that she'd kind of understand, but then she'd just get that blank look on her face again. And uh, I was real sad the day she died, of course, but I was also very, very thankful. And... At her funeral, there were over 200 people there, and I'll bet you at least half of them were alcoholics. There was a damnedest bunch of alkies I ever saw in my life. They were all over the place. One guy came up and said, do you remember me? And I said, yeah, well, I haven't seen you for 15 years. Well, he said, I saw in your paper where your wife died. I just had to come to her funeral. And just the care and the love in that room was just unreal. I just, I love AA, and I love you people. You've all been so great and so good to me. It's just fantastic. I just want to read a little bit, and then I'll put a sock in it. <laughs> on page 164, it says, Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. 
but obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourselves to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet us, some of us, as you trudge the happy road to destiny. May God bless and keep you until then. Thank you for being such a great audience.